Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being our rock. We have nothing to fear because of you. Oh, and I'm so thankful for that. I pray that you would challenge us from your word now. Help us to see you and how you really are as far as your attitude towards us, the people who struggle, the people who have needs. Lord, you are there for us because you are a great, wonderful, amazing Savior. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> you notice I didn't wear a suit this week. <clears throat> I wanted to prove, I really kind of wanted to prove to you guys I could do it two weeks in a row, but I thought, they harassed me so badly last week, I didn't dare to do it again. Or I just didn't want to do it. One of those two things, but we'll go with the, uh, the other one on that. But I am just delighted that we can come together God's word. This is where our power is. This is where our authority stands. Not in our own opinions, but in the power of God's word. So, I hope you're with me in Mark chapter 5. Charles Dickens, many, many of you have probably read it, but his classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, he begins the book with this memorable sentence. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And that came to mind as I was studying our passage for this morning. You see, it was the best of times. A husband and wife, they celebrated the birth of their daughter. As any new parent can tell you, the joy and the excitement of a baby, it's practically unparalleled. But it was also the worst of times. At that same time, a woman began bleeding in a way that meant something was very, very wrong. This was not just her monthly period. This was a discharge of blood that would not stop. She undoubtedly became anemic from the blood loss, always tired, always fatigued. And add to that the stigma of bleeding within the Jewish culture, and it had to be extra difficult for her because in that culture, she was deemed to be unclean. In fact, anyone that touched her, or even anyone who touched something that she had touched, (laughs) would be ceremonially unclean. So added to her sickness... She also had become a social outcast. No one would let her even come near to them. Twelve years went by. For the parents, it was probably like the blink of an eye. How could their little baby girl have grown so rapidly? She was now 12. In fact, in the Jewish culture, one day after a girl's 12th birthday, she actually was considered a woman. So here their little baby in just 12 years had now was on the threshold of womanhood. Yeah, it was the best of times for that family. For that woman, though, those 12 years had undoubtedly been long and insufferable. She had spent, in fact, all of her money on physicians desperately hoping to be healed, but nothing worked. So yeah, for her, it was the worst of times. Enter now Jesus, 
and his disciples into the story. After, after we're just re- remember for the past couple of weeks, after a harrowing uh, boat ride, and then uh, when they were over there in the area of Gergesa on the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, you can see on your map there, there they had delivered and, and the self, witnessed the salvation of a, a former demoniac, but now they returned back over the sea, probably to Capernaum, there on the north, northern shore, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we're going to pick up our story. In fact, I have three points for us this morning. Number one is this, a desperate plea. Again, I hope you're with me in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start reading verse 21 and have you follow along. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And just like that, the best of times became the worst of times for Jairus and for his family. Now, as the ruler of the synagogue, he may have seen Jesus cast the demon out of the possessed man that we saw back in chapter 1. He may have also seen Jesus heal the man with the withered hand in the synagogue that we saw in chapter 3. Two things, though, we do know for sure. Absolutely, he knew that his daughter was dying. And he knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. And so he did the very best thing he possibly could have done. He made a beeline to Jesus. And he fell at his feet and he begged him to heal his daughter. And here's the great thing. Jesus agreed to do that. Can't you just imagine when Jesus said, okay, and he went to go with him. Can you imagine the sense of relief that Jairus felt? Because this was the miracle worker that could heal people, and now he was coming to heal his daughter. Can't you imagine the thrill of hope where he had been desperate for once just a second before that, but now he had hope in his heart because Jesus had agreed to come with him and to heal his daughter. Point number two, though, is a deadly delay. Let's pick it up again in verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This woman who had suffered for 12 long years had also heard the news about Jesus. She had heard about this miracle worker. She had healed how he, or excuse me, heard how he had healed many, many people of their diseases. And so she formulated a plan. It's a simple, but it was a daring plan. We'll call it Operation Touch and Run. Okay, here it is. Because she just came up with this idea in her mind. She thought, if I could just sneak up behind him, and if I can just touch the hem of his garment, she believes he would be healed. Well, there were three really big holes in her plan, though. 
First of all, there was a huge crowd around Jesus. So that in itself would make her idea of just coming up behind Jesus and touching his garment would make it really difficult. But add to that hole number two, and I tell you, she had an exponentially greater problem. Because as we talked about, this woman, she had bled for 12 years. She was not only unclean, declared unclean in that culture, but as I mentioned, anyone and everyone that she touched would also then become unclean. Well, in a dense crowd, people thronged around Jesus, and she's trying to get up to the Savior and touch his garments. I would think it would have been impossible for her not to touch people as she did that. And if these people realized who she was, or if they found out what she had done, I tell you, she risked a great deal by coming to Jesus because she risked the threat of attack and violence by people who found out what she had just done. Hole number three in her theory or plan is that, well, there was no precedent for what she, this idea that she had come up with. Yes, Jesus had healed many people. We've seen that through the book of Mark already. But, but not by having someone secretly sneak up and touch his clothes That hadn't been done before. This was a plan that she had somehow formulated all on her own. But but as they say, desperate times require desperate actions, and she was most definitely desperate. And so she was willing to take a risk, I would say a huge risk, by forcing her way through a crowd of people coming up behind Jesus, touching the hem of his garment. Let's see what happened. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. It worked! It worked immediately. Glory to God on high. It worked. For 12 years, nothing had worked, but now she had touched Jesus' clothes, and she was healed. Now, just for a quick getaway, and she could actually start to lead a normal life for the first time in 12 years. (laughs) But back the healing truck up a minute here. There was something that was very significant. You see, Jesus knew that she needed more than just that physical healing. And so contrary to her plans... Jesus did not let her just simply sneak away and be healed. Now, we have no idea what type of sensation that Jesus felt, but let's just read here what goes on. Verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, (laughs) You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Ah, Now, what this sensation was that Jesus felt again, we don't know, but somehow he knew that power, healing power, had gone out from him. I think it's almost comical here. 
Because the disciples, I think they seemed almost annoyed in their response to Jesus, asking such a ridiculous question as to who touched him. I, it, you know, to read into it a little bit is kind of like, I mean, Jesus, look around you. A better question would be, who didn't touch you? And you're asking us, who touched you? <laughs> but Jesus wouldn't let it go. He kept looking around. He kept looking around at all the people there to see who had done it. And suddenly this woman, her elation turned to fear. She had been found out. I suspect that part of her fear was because of the crowd, many of whom she had most certainly just contaminated and made unclean. So she may have feared that. But I think her real fear I think the fear that made her tremble and fall down before Jesus was the fear that he would take back her healing. You see, she hadn't asked Jesus to be healed, right? Basically, she, <laughs> she stole the healing. Uh, touching him without his knowledge or approval, what if, what if he was going to reverse it? What if he was going to let that disease that she had been free of for just a matter of seconds come back and haunt her again. <laughs> but that wasn't on Jesus' mind at all. I, I, I'm reading into the text here, but personally, I think he already knew who touched him. I mean, <laughs> he is God, right? He's God. So, no, But again, we don't know for sure, but I just think he knew. But I do know this. He knew that she needed more than just the physical healing. She thought that was all that she would need, but he knew her heart, he knew her, he knew that she needed more, and so what he did is he forced her into the spotlight of public confession. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I think that she needed three things, and Jesus gave them all to her in what we just read here. First of all, she needed to know that it was her faith in Jesus that had healed her. It wasn't some superstitious idea that there was somehow some magic power in his clothing. And so just by touching that clothing, that that's what healed her. She needed to understand it was, it was faith in Jesus. Not the clothes, not her plan, Operation Touch and Run, none of that stuff. It was Jesus. She needed to know that. She also needed to know that her healing was permanent. She didn't have to live in fear that Jesus might take that healing away. She didn't have to fear that that dreaded disease might come back upon her. But she also needed to know that she was loved and accepted. Did you notice what Jesus called her there? He called her daughter. That is a term of affection, a term of care. For 12 years, she would have been an outcast from everyone. Not even to able to be touched or cared for by her own family, right? She would have been isolated from everyone. She would have had to live alone because everything she touched 
would be made ceremonially unclean. And so if anyone she knew touched anything that she had touched, they would also then become unclean. She had to have lived in isolation. But Jesus now, in this moment where she's facing this fear, Jesus reaches out to her and he calls her daughter. I suspect that was the first time in probably close to 12 years she had heard someone address her in an affectionate way. I love that. But what of Jairus? We can't forget about him. When he heard Jesus call this woman daughter, he most certainly thought of his own daughter. In fact, I guarantee you that he was already thinking of his daughter the entire time that this had gone on and taken place. And so this woman, Jairus' mind, I suspect it was like this woman, he saw her in her need, and he understood that it was significant. But that was nothing compared to his need. His daughter was dying. Every second was precious. Jesus, come back and deal with that woman later. But my daughter's dying, Jesus. I need you to come with me now. Think of it this way. Let's say that you had a child that suddenly became very sick. In fact, they were dying. And so the ambulance rushed your child to the hospital. And immediately they take your child into a room. And you're there with her. And just as the doctor, though, comes in, the specialist who's going to look and take care of your, your child, suddenly then a woman barges in right behind him. And she says, Doctor, I've had this illness for 12 years and now I just can't take it anymore. Please, please help me. And to your amazement, and to your horror, the doctor agrees. And he says he'll be back in a few minutes, but he needs to deal with this woman first. We would be talking lawsuit here. Because what if your child died during the time that this physician was examining some woman who had had something for 12 years? It's tantamount to malpractice is what it is. And even if it wasn't your child who had died, it still would be unthinkable that a doctor would do that to anyone's child. Your child needed him. And he just said, I'll be back in a little while, and your daughter or your son dies. Well, he's talking with someone who has been ill for 12 years. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did? That is, that is it. My goodness, I don't know about you, but I get upset when someone pulls out in front of me when I'm driving and it makes me lose like a good three or four seconds of my precious time. I know you guys can't relate to that, but some some people, hypothetically, some people maybe have a hard time with that. But come on! 
That is nothing. That's not even a blip on the radar compared to the frustration that Jairus must have been experiencing with every single second of the delay as Jesus is dealing with this woman and he stops and he wants to know who touched him. And then this woman, he, he, she comes up and she talks to Jesus. Every second would have been driving him crazy. He is afraid that his daughter is going to die. And suddenly, his worst fear became reality. Look at verse 35. While he was still, this is Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? can't imagine what that was like for Jairus. Step, or point number three, though, a death-defying miracle. Let's read the rest of the story. Follow along as so we pick up in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her By the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, I would have expected the very first thing that Jesus said to Jairus back there when he found out that his daughter was dead, I would have expected Jesus to say something like, Jairus, don't be sad. Just, just believe. Or, or, Jairus, it's okay. Trust me. Trust me. It's going to be okay. But did you notice what he said there? Do not fear only believe. I think this is so fascinating because just as he forced the woman to deal with her fear, so now he does the exact same thing to Jairus. But I ask you, what did Jairus have to fear? What did fear even have to do with this anymore? Was there fear of being too late? Well, that was no longer even an issue. She was dead. Uh, The fear that Jesus might not be able to heal her, maybe her disease was too much for him, Well, that fear would have been a thing of the past, since she was now beyond healing. So so what fear could Jairus have had, and why was it the very first thing that Jesus addressed? I think it's this. His fear was that Jesus was not enough for the situation. He might, right, Jairus might have been thinking, hey, Jesus, okay, he he might be powerful enough to heal my daughter if if they make it back there in time, but, but come on, that ship has sailed. There's no healing. She is dead. So no, not even this amazing miracle worker who has healed countless numbers of people. Well, couldn't do anything now, right? 
<laughs> wrong. He was more than enough. But, but, but Jairus, now think of him. He was about to walk into his home and he was going to be faced with overwhelming evidence that was contrary to that. Because he would walk in and he would see his precious little girl lying on her bed with no breath and no pulse. How could Jesus be enough for that? He would walk in and he would see his wife who was crushed and devastated by her daughter's death. How could Jesus be enough for that? He he would see and he would hear the mourners who were weeping and wailing for his daughter. How could Jesus be enough for any of what he was going to be exposed to? Well, in answer to that, I love this. Jesus, he kicked everyone out of the house, and he took only Peter, James, and John, and Jairus and his wife into where the dead child lay. And then he took her by the hand, and he said, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, Arise. Now, most of our translation, English translations, and I checked a number of them, most of them say little girl in translating that word Talitha. But I tell you that doesn't really convey fully the meaning of the word because it's much more tender and much more compassionate than just simply that. A better translation might be something along the lines of honey, sweetie. Sweetie, it's time to get up. And isn't that something that her parents had probably said to her hundreds of times before? But now it was Jesus calling her back from the dead and bringing life back into her, help, her, her lifeless body. And immediately, oh, I love this. Mark uses that word like we talked about before more than anyone else in the Bible. Immediately, she got up. And the parents, as well as the three apostles who were with him, were immediately, there it is again, overcome with amazement. That, that overcome with amazement literally means to be so astounded as to be practically overwhelmed. And how could they not be? So, so back to the fear question. Why did Jesus force not only Jairus, but also the woman with the bleeding disease, to deal with the issue of fear. It's because faith in Jesus is the exact opposite of fear. He is the cure for our fear. And I think that's a really important lesson for you and I to remember as well. Maybe it's, maybe it's the fear of a life-threatening disease. Maybe it's fear of an unknown sickness that you struggle with. Maybe it's fear of abandonment. Maybe it's fear of loneliness. Maybe it's fear of financial stress. Maybe it's fear of security. Maybe it's fear of failure. Well, you fill in the blank because there are a lot of things that we might be fearful of. But as much as we want to deny it, we all struggle with fear. We do. But we have Jesus. 
and he is greater than anything we could ever face. He healed a woman who had been sick for 12 years. He touched a dead child and lovingly brought her back to life. Do you really think that there is anything that you are facing that is too great for him? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I want you to remember the words of Isaiah 41.10. I put those on the back of your bulletin for you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. As Jesus said to Jairus, I think he is saying to every single one of us, do not fear, only believe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your greatness. But it's not just greatness that you have. It is this incredible love and compassion. You don't chastise us for our fears. You comfort our fears. And you just tell us to believe in you, to trust you. There is nothing greater than you. Things may not turn out the way that we want them to, but God, in your infinite wisdom, they will turn out perfectly for your plan and for your glory, and you work for our good, whatever that means. In every situation, Lord, sometimes it is dark. Sometimes we are struggling with the fear. Oh, help us look to you, Jesus. Help us be reminded again that you tell us just to believe because you truly are more than enough. And I thank you and I praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.